This is episode 226 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled Enlightened with Dan Stalkup, Part 2. This is the second of two episodes that we did about the HBO series Enlightened. The first part was released last week, so you probably want to listen to them both. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, the training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And I was thinking for our second hour, we might talk more about the show as a show and like its timing and how it compared to other shows. So Dan, one of the things that uh, has kind of been in the background of our conversation is how relevant the show seems to modern day discussions, that there's something kind of timeless about it. But, you know, it, it was a while ago, right? I mean, it first came out in 2011. So how do you place that show compared to other shows at that time? 2011 and 2013 were the two seasons. And this was just as the paradigm of scripted television was starting to change in in significant ways. I believe Orange is the New Black had already come out to pretty wide acclaim. Mm. I think House of Cards too. So we were starting to see for the first time scripted prestige television coming out on streaming platforms and not just coming out on streaming platforms, but understanding how that change changes the rules of the, the way that uh, TV can be made, can be shared, can be consumed. So things that we take for granted now that, you know, a TV show might, you might be able to access all of its episodes at once, or, you know, you could have one episode be 25 minutes and the next episode be 35 minutes. And then the next one be, back to 20 minutes and uh, you can have stories that run almost like long movies across Mm -hmm. seasons and have everything pre-written up front and pre-filmed up front. All of this stuff was in flux. And this show is, is almost, it's one of the the handful of stepping stone shows Mm -hmm. where we really see that it's kind of one of the last great pre-streaming era, although it was kind of early in the streaming era. It wasn't, we weren't fully in that era, but one of the last great unique shows that also did foreshadow some of the things that would make prestige TV so wonderful later over the next five to 10 years as writers could focus on telling more complex stories where they wouldn't have to worry about getting the exact ratings bump that they needed Right. This week to next week, they could focus more on the story. And I think that, uh, you know, strictly from a, f- a f- formal and industry perspective, the show maybe wasn't influential, but it was a a uh, lens into what was happening. Yeah, kind of kudos to Mike White. It, it was pro- what he did was probably much more inventive at that time than I've realized later because I came to the show pretty late. I mean, I, I think I didn't see it until a few years ago. 
So I definitely wasn't, you know, aware of it until probably lots and lots of people had consumed it already. We were also a few years into the era where there was kind of a, maybe not cult of personality, but more of like an auteur vision Mm -hmm. by showrunners. So, you know, the one that really uh, laid the groundwork on this was The Sopranos in 1999, David Chase. And from there, HBO prestige shows and were often led by one singular voice. Mad Men was another one. I believe Mm -hmm. Matthew Weiner was the name of the guy who wrote that. Breaking Bad was Vince Gilligan. And this idea of having one person having a voice that guided the whole show, resulting in really moving and powerful TV work, was kind of really starting to build by the time Enlightened debuted. And we were also starting to see that transition to comedy. The show Louis centered around Louis C.K., mm-hmm. completely his vision, was one of the first comedy shows to, to really be built around a singular voice guiding and crafting the entire story. And Enlightened is very much in that vein. Um, Mike White, as you mentioned, is is the, the king of the show, is is the one with the voice. He, he did develop it in conjunction with Laura Dern, but as you said, he has the full writing credit on every single episode of the the series. So definitely a, a work of inspiration by him in an era where people were starting to get that freedom mm-hmm. to, to have that voice. And it's really a shame that the third season that he had planned, we're, we're never going to be able to see. Oh, so he did have a third season planned. I didn't know that. He did. Yes. He had oh. a third season planned and it was going to, he, he kind of knew, I read an article with an interview with, with Mike White, where he talked about the, the end of the show and, you know, what might've been in the cards for these characters in a hypothetical third season. And he said he initially planned it as a three season show. And wow. as the second season was being developed, as you said, he was, his budget was restricted. They said, okay, you only get eight episodes, you don't get 10. Mm-hmm. And he kind of saw that the writing was on the wall that he might not get to complete it. So he did adjusted a little bit so that it ended on a fairly satisfying note where mm-hmm. we, we start to see what happened when this expose dropped. And it, it almost feels like a culmination for Amy at that point. But apparently a third season was going to focus a little more on Amy's relationship with her family. So we definitely get a lot of her with her mother. One thing that's mentioned a couple times, but not really focused on is that there is a sister yeah. of Amy's who isn't in the picture. And no. Mike White basically said that, yeah, she's kind of estranged that the toxicity and the, just everything about the Amy's personality and the mother's personality was kind of what drove her away. And that he was planning to write having her come back and kind of confronting some of these long held demons that we kind of get little glimpses into uh, in the first two seasons. And that was one plot point. But another one that I think would have been really interesting is that one thing we get in the finale is the CEO of Abaddon profanely shouting that he's going to sue Amy and uh-huh. bring her down. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and what is she? Yeah. She has some, she has some very, a forthright comeback. She's like, well, you know, I'm totally in debt and I'm driving a broken yeah. down car. So yeah, go ahead. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. She's obviously 
she's not someone who would suffer from a lawsuit as much as other people. But uh-huh. one idea he had that I think would have been really cool to see is having the lawsuit essentially span the, the third season and one recurring element be this idea of character witnesses. So oh, different characters right. throughout the show basically attesting to what was her motives, what was she like. And I can just imagine all these people. I thought of Krista in particular, Krista, who yeah. is a little guarded around Amy and has second thoughts about her relationship, friendship with Amy and being under oath about what they felt about Amy as a character witness. That would have been real rich. Yeah, that would have been very entertaining. I have to say, I would have loved to have seen a season three, loved, loved. But it does feel quite satisfying. I mean, he was able to kind of conclude the show, I think, very well, even without those two extra episodes. I guess the sister does feel like a little bit of something out there that we don't know very much about, but it doesn't feel like a dangling end. So he did really well to to conclude it the way that he did. Agreed. I, I definitely would have loved to have seen what he had in mind, but I, I agree with you that given the constraints that he had, he made it feel as satisfying and complete as he could. In terms of this character witness thing that it does kind of make me laugh, there's a place where Amy is complaining to someone and and basically her objection is what happened to her after she had an affair with her boss and what happened to her boss after they had an affair. And as often happens in real life, you know, she was the one who was punished. But the way she's saying it, I can't remember who she's complaining to, but she's so over the top, right? And so self-righteous that you you kind of have this, oh, you know, feeling of regret, like, oh, you're not handling this well. This isn't the right way to make this argument. But the reality is she's not wrong, you know, it's, but the way she puts it across, you know, she says, and I'm the one who ends up in the basement. <laughs> so she's, she's so uh, hostile that you feel a little unsympathetic to her. But the reality is, as would probably come up in a character witness trial, she's not wrong. Absolutely. I mean, repeatedly, I think one element of that that is important to note is I think it was, it might've been Tyler, but I'm pretty sure it was someone in Cogentiva. So she was ranting about how she got punished. She got stuck down with these people down in Cogentiva <laughs> and to someone who's in Cogentiva. So oh, it's yeah. even more unsympathetic <laughs> at that moment. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, the, it, it is It is really great the way he shows these characters. The other one that I was pretty struck by, it's like, oh, Amy, what are you doing? So she's lying in bed and she's thinking about uh, things in her life and how she feels empty and wanting. And what's playing on the screen while she's having this voiceover are all these scenes of Krista, Krista being pregnant, Krista being embraced by her husband and Krista in her nice home. And you realize what's really happening is Amy is just feeling jealous. And it's such a, you know, this sort of mix and match thing of Amy sort of acting like, oh, yes, I'm so, you know, I'm having all these high level thoughts. And really, she's just green with jealousy about her coworker. Definitely. That's a recurring theme is to what extent is her desire to take down Abaddon a personal revenge quest? And to what extent is it a enlightened, do the right thing quest? And 
we see different angles of that for different people. Dougie, who ends up getting in on the scheme, just makes no no hesitation to say that it's strictly a revenge play for him. But uh-huh. but for for Amy, it's definitely a muddle. And I I liked that it didn't. She's definitely Amy is definitely heroic in many ways. Mm-hmm. But the show does not make her into a saint. Oh no! And that's something that I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Well, and when I mean it's very telling when the reporter says to her, "Oh, what happened? You get screwed over by one of these guys at this company?" And she's like, "Well, no, that's not it at all." It's like, "Well, actually, <laughs> yeah, there, there's a pretty big element of that that's correct." Definitely, yeah. <laughs> and it's like he's his job is writing these things and he's seen it all before. He's like, Oh yeah. Uh, someone's coming out. Yeah. Definitely got, got screwed over in some way. That's a funny moment. Uh huh. It's interesting. You bring up the Sopranos because I had never seen that show. And now since I have the subscription to HBO, I'm able to see that. I think one thing that did come out may also with breaking bad, but with the Sopranos and, you know, it did become kind of a, a new way of looking at characters because you get to see them for so much longer than just in a movie is how much more complex they are. And the Sopranos, you know, is really a good example of that where you have characters that are very conflicted, right? And certainly we, we in the audience are also conflicted about them. Absolutely. Amy Jellico. she's not exactly an anti-hero, but she comes from this culture of TV that was big at the time, as I mentioned, where anti-heroes, these, these characters who we sympathize with for certain reasons, but who have a lot of villainy in them or negativity in them are the protagonists. And we get to mm-hmm. dig deep into their internal life, their internal monologues, their scenarios, their motivations. And it really gives us a, a glimpse of a complex character. And for the Sopranos, it was mobsters. For Breaking Bad, it was somebody cooking meth. Mm-hmm. In Enlightened, it's a corporate whistleblower. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not exactly the same thing. But it is similar. How how as you said, we get the amount of time we get to spend the the free reign that the show has to really tell continuous building stories. It's it's really powerful storytelling. If to to be able to get that much mileage out of a single show a single character a single concept and i mean they call the the age from about you know 2000 to now particularly the last 10 years peak tv and that's not just in quantity of tv i mean the number of shows from the number of scripted produced shows almost tripled from 2009 to 2019 wow uh, which is crazy to think about yeah so it's peak, not just in the amount of shows, but in the, the quality of it, the variety of it, the depth of it. And, you know, Enlightened is certainly one example of that. Yeah, I was thinking the first time I ever saw Laura Dern was in the movie Rambling Rose, which in fact, her, her mother plays her mother in that one also. And then most recently, I saw Laura Dern in Little Big Lies. You know, it's a show about a bunch of women and she's one of the women in in that show. Krista also shows up in Little Big Lies. And it's funny now as, as a consumer of TV, it's almost like when we see a character that we know quite well, there's a feeling of recognition and sort of welcome 
So Krista in Little Big Lies, she doesn't have a big part, but she's a little bit of a similar character to what she plays as Enlightened, a little bit small-minded maybe, and a little bit entitled. And so you just recognize that character. And Laura Dern too, I felt like there were some similarities between the character she plays in Little Big Lies and in Enlightened. Not exactly, but you you know, as you as the audience, you've gotten to know these people so intimately. It makes our reaction to other shows kind of different because of that. That can go, you know, two ways. It can, there's certainly, I, I completely agree with, with what you said uh, about how when you have seen a great actor play a compelling character with depth for a long time, you start to learn that actor's emotional vocabulary to some mm. extent. Mm-hmm. And for me, whenever I see Laura Dern, I, I love Laura Dern in any show movie that she's in. And that's basically since I saw this, this is like the deepest role I've ever seen her in. Uh-huh. And it just makes me appreciate it more. Uh-huh. And uh, so one example is there's a drama from 2014, I think it was called The Founder. It's actually one of the ones we talked about on my podcast which is the story of Ray Kroc, who is the Uh founder of McDonald's. And it kind of interrogates to what extent he was actually the founder. But Laura Dern plays Uh his wife. Uh Um, And Joan, Joan. she's quite famous in San Diego. Actually, it's it's his first wife she plays. Oh, okay. I Uh, see. Not not Joan, too. He ends up divorcing her. But for me, she just left a huge impact because she was... Laura Dern, and she was able to convey so much in this this small amount of screen time that she's probably only on screen for five or 10 minutes throughout the whole movie, you know, but Mm. it's amazing that when you have this relationship with these actors via their characters, as you said, you can really connect with them. When Laura Dern gets introduced to Dougie, when she gets taken down to level H and introduced, Dougie says to her, damn, you tall girl. (laughs) And Laura Dern is pretty tall. She's 5'10", which actually isn't that tall, but she does seem pretty tall and enlightened. She seems really tall in Little Big Lies, especially next to Reese Witherspoon, who I think is not particularly tall. But, But it is funny, every time I would see her in a scene in Little Big Lies, where it's clear that she's kind of towering over the other women, I would think, damn, you tall, girl. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, and another thing that this show does is, particularly in the interior shots at Abaddon and especially Cogentiva, it does a lot of low angle shots. So mm-hmm. that's where the camera is lower and it's kind of tilted upwards. And this actually has two effects. I've never seen it done quite like it's done in Enlightened. It has simultaneously two effects. And one is that it makes the characters it's showing seem a little bigger and seem a little taller. Mm -hmm. And it kind of visually conveys some, something about those characters, some dignity or some strength. And the, the other end of it is we often get to see the ceiling and these are like nine foot ceilings. These aren't big sprawling spaces. And so you get the sense of claustrophobia mm-hmm. inside coach and Tiva that, that Laura Dern really feels as she is. So in fact, so tall. So I, I thought that was a bit of a film work within this show. I mean, the show is not, doesn't have a ton of visual flair. It doesn't like do slow. It, it doesn't do really crazy visual effect shots for, for most of it, but I think it, it's it's well-directed and well-shot for sure. 
and it, it has a visual vocabulary to it. Yeah, there's a scene, some helicopter shots going over, I presume it's Riverside at night where you see the skyscrapers and she, and the voiceover, she's talking about the kingdoms that we have built. And I actually meant to go back and watch that again because I thought it was really, really effective, right? This notion of what have we wrought, right? What, what as a civilization have we created these magnificent buildings and, and yet what's happening inside of them? You know, what, what have we done to, to the people, right? It's really, it's a very, it's very effective. I completely agree. I think you hit the nail on the head there. There's like a, a, a shiny vacuousness to the corporations and for example, in Abaddon, you're right that there's there is a shot. I think it's towards the end of one episode where it's it's kind of looking at those institutions from a thirty thousand foot view, and they're just so kind of crystalline and inorganic and inhuman. Mm-hmm. And inside Abaddon, with the lobby, we see that many times characters are crossing paths in this lobby, and it's this huge open space. It just feels like soul crushingly empty. The show does a good job of conveying, of conveying the impersonality of the corporations. Yeah, there's, there's so much great stuff that's subtle, too. When Amy goes to visit Krista after she's come back. So at this point, it turns out that Krista has gotten Amy's old job. And so she's actually in Amy's office. You can imagine how painful that is for Amy to experience. And then not only that, but Krista is using these phrases like she's like, oh yeah, you know that lunch that we were gonna have. Yeah, we're gonna have to put a pin in that. And then, and then a little later in the conversation, she says, you know, I have to go. I have to roll some calls. It's like, what have we done to ourselves when we talk like this? It's a really interesting relationship because she was previously Amy's assistant, and so there's like this ongoing dynamic where Amy sort of acts like Krista always owes her a debt. And then that's kind of contrasted with the flip side where Krista is now the one in power and she's now the one who is the the hotshot and uses all this corporate lingo and <laughs> and and kind of uses it against Amy. Uh-huh. Yeah. You you move on because I gotta roll some calls. It's just, <laughs> it's just terrible. Yeah. So I, I was curious what your observations were about the acting, like how Laura plays Amy. And that so many of these characters as or actor, actors, I should say, you've mentioned have experience in comedy acting. I mean, Laura Dern has done it all. She's done dramas and comedies. Luke Wilson, Levi, is mainly oh, known yeah. as a comedy actor. His big breakthrough was uh, one of Wes Anderson's first films. Um, and his brother is Owen Wilson, the mm-hmm. famous comedy actor as well. Sarah Burns is a stand-up comedian, often does uh, comedy. I mean, you go down the list... Oh, that's and, Krista. Yes. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, interesting. And, you know, so many of the Molly Shannon, who plays Eileen, the, the assistant, she's often in comedy. Huh. Uh, Ricky Lindholm plays Harper. So she's the, uh, the bl- blonde, tall mm-hmm. friend of Krista's. She's frequently described that way, who at one point they try to set up with Dougie. Yes. And she... <laughs> She, her breakthrough was she was on the TV show Scrubs and she had a comedy music duo that she was on that had a lot of skits on YouTube and other stuff. 
Ah. And so you just go up and down the roster and it's a lot of people with comedy background. And I think it works to the show's advantage because the show can turn into comedy on just a moment's notice and the actors are perfectly poised for it. And it manages to find tense comedy in, in the drama of it all Mm -hmm. and how these characters can be in these kind of tense, uncomfortable situations, but there's, there's still something light and funny about the way that they're playing it, not in an overly broad way, but how it can be cringe inducing, but then make you laugh at the same time. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head there. It's not overly broad. And I think that makes that really works because we're kind of, or at least I'm a little cynical about those, you know, kind of the old way we used to do comedy when we had a whole cast of characters. So there are scenes down there in level H at Cogentiva that run the risk of being that way, you know, sort of the a whole bunch of people working together at sort of the maybe Silicon Valley or the IT crowd, maybe mostly the IT crowd. It's not like that. I mean, there are definitely funny lines when when they're when they're fighting about whether or not they should work when they're sick. And then they're like trying to say, well, he's sick. Look, he's coughing. He needs to go home. And then Dougie breaks into all this. He's like, look, I'm in charge here. And he's like, and I'm not in charge of the United Nations of bitching. (laughs) So so they definitely have, you know, sort of classic comedy things, but it's not overly broad. And I think you're right. It allows the show then to turn very quickly to pathos. And that really works for me. Or, and I see that with really good stand-up comedians is when they're able to quickly go from making you laugh to making you cry, that just works really well. And this show does that with a lot of expertise. Yeah. And you, you brought up uh, Laura Dern earlier too, and how she plays Amy. And I think she does a really tremendous job playing Amy, how she has all of these different things going on. She's ultimately, you know, she has tragic elements to her character. She has very Very. sympathetic elements, but she doesn't shy away from making the character like a little bit unlikable and off-putting now and then. Mm -hmm. It's brave. Yeah. How she's just able to convey so much with just her expressions. Her face is so expressive. (laughs) There are whole long shots, like extended sequences where it's just her hearing something or talking with someone and her, the reaction on her face just tells the whole story. Mm-hmm. It's, it's revulsion. It's her thinking about herself and how she can be a part of this narrative. And it's um, a really impressive piece of acting across these 18 episodes. You, you can tell that she was heavily involved in crafting this character. In fact, she gets a story co-credit on the pilot. Even though Mike Wright wrote the script, she gets the story co-credit. And I think that's a testament to how much Laura Dern just envisioned this specific character and really brought her to life. Yeah, it is very brave. And now that I'm thinking about it, it's kind of true for a lot of the characters. I'm thinking, well, Dougie, you know, the way he plays that character as both both kind of a doofus, but also eventually kind of a, I don't know what the word is for him much more sympathetic, right? He turns out to be much more complicated than you thought. Although when he, I think at the very beginning, he 
introduces himself and he says something like, I graduated from UC Irvine. And it was like, oh, good, I'm going to be okay. And it's so, it's so revealing, right, that this person who suspected he wasn't a very talented person got a degree from UC Irvine. And it's like, oh, it, you know, thank God, I'm, I'm going to be all right. He's actually a pretty talented IT guy. Yeah. So he, he's an interesting. I, I think you're definitely right. For much of the show, he's kind of this, just this really uh, brash, over the top manager, very ineffective. Terrible manager. Terrible. <laughs> uh, very off putting, not at all motivating, and like head in the clouds. And we see him playing video games and ping pong, but also he's just harsh and demanding and doesn't really do much in the way of actual leadership. But as you said, there is more to him too. He, yeah, he's smart. When he joins this little effort to bring down Abaddon, we get to see a little bit of his hacking in action Mm -hmm. and his scheming in action, how you could see how he could really be a part of building something really special and powerful if he's actually engaged and in the right role. Mm -hmm. And there is a certain I don't know what the right word, the word that came to mind was patheticness to him when he's kind of coming down off when we, he learns that Cogentiva is going to be shut down and it's, it's kind of lost for him and how, I don't know how much like he kind of played himself up when he got appointed to his VP, although we've seen how small and petty he can be, mm-hmm. but it, it does turn around a little bit. You know, you get to see that he's smart, he's competent, and he ends up having a pretty strong bond with Amy by the end of, of the show. But mm-hmm. uh, it, it's an interesting character that uh, is unlikable for much of it, but much in the way the show does with other characters, you get you get the flip side of it. You get You get the complexity, you get the other angle. Yeah, and isn't it interesting when he, when you do get to see more of him, how quickly I, my allegiance just fell in behind him. It was like, yeah, Dougie, go. <laughs> it's like really right. funny how, yeah, how convincing, how, how quickly once he showed those other sides, how, how I was able to get behind him. Like I didn't hold it against him that he had been, as you say, kind of pathetic before. But yeah, when people reveal themselves as real human beings, it's very powerful. We we move to their side very fast. Yeah, definitely. You get a lot of different angles on a lot of different characters here and how you can see Krista. She's the former assistant, but who kind of effortlessly falls into this kind of corporate leadership, which kind of changes her. And just mm-hmm. it, the show does a good job of giving us all those different lenses. I was thinking about Luke Wilson's character, Levi, and I thought he also did a good job in presenting that character. Also, again, quite brave, I thought, that he doesn't sugarcoat how troubled he is and kind of how useless he is. Not in a not as a buffoon, but just, boy, he is a depressed character. And he, you know, he goes through his own narrative arc, especially in season two, when he too uh, goes off to open air the place in Hawaii where Amy has gone. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Wilson is great in this. I, I really noticed when I was rewatching, he's just, he's excellent. He's very engaging on screen. He has this great way of delivering those lines in a way that's not too callous. Like the way that he's honest, he can be mean, 
but it doesn't come off as too nasty. You can see why he's sort of magnetic, you know, mm-hmm. and how someone would fall for him. Like someone like Amy would see something powerful yep. in his kind of uh, his honesty and his, his, uh, I don't know. He, he lives in the moment and, and wears things on his sleeves. And I found it really moving early in the show when Amy, Laura Dern's character, is trying really hard to figure out how to be this agent of change. Mm-hmm. And one of her first missions is she's like, all right, I'm going to start with Levi. I'm going to reconnect with Levi. I'm going to help him get on the right track. That's how she's going to be an agent of change. She brings him on this kayaking trip, wants to help him get back on the right track and keeps telling him that he should go to open air. And of course, things go south. He stuck drugs on the trip. He's not at all interested in reforming himself. And he has, they have this great conversation where he, he's like, don't, don't try to save me, Amy. I don't need saving. I always feel worse when I'm with you. You make me feel bad about myself. Yeah. And it's just this, I mean, it's, it's great that we get to see him turn things around a little bit and have a slightly more positive spin in the second season. But that, that moment where it's it's moving for a few reasons. I mean, one is that he's able to be this honest with her mm-hmm. in the way that Krista, for example, is not at all honest with her, but that Amy can't even, the person who's closest to her can't even get her to change and how there is some danger in moving people the way they might not want to be moved. That if you are that agent of change, that it can it can cause damage and it can be not a strictly, purely, universally good and beloved thing. I, I thought that was a, a moving moment and a kind of a moving character dynamic between Levi and Amy. Yeah, they have a number of scenes where they really are talking to each other very honestly. I mean, it can be a, a little bit brutally honest, but yeah, they definitely have some. That scene, I think it's right at the beginning. It might be in the pilot where he says to her, yeah, you're lording over me, you know, what's happened to you. but you're going to fall, Amy. I, you're hanging by a thread. You're, ho- mm-hmm. you're holding on to the cliff edge by one finger. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and he's not wrong. She gets so mm-hmm. close to yeah. being fired or having meltdowns or, you know, all these things repeatedly throughout the, the show. The other one, I don't know if you had that reaction, but... So that she's good. She takes him off on this kayaking thing. And, and when she makes the call to him, like, this is it, we're doing this. It's going to be so great. You know, be ready at seven and all this. And it's just like, Oh, Amy, what are you doing? But he's game, you know, he packs up, he's ready. He's like, well, you told me to be ready at seven. I'm ready at seven. Yeah. Like, okay. That we didn't see that coming. And then she finds his drugs, right. When they're out on the trip. And so she dumps the drugs, right? And I, I don't know. Uh-huh. I'd be curious what you thought. I when I saw what she was gonna do, I just felt like, oh no, Amy, no, 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 no. But other people might not have had that reaction. I don't know. Like they think, oh yeah, that's a good thing, dump his drugs. What did you think? I think it's a good example of the way that this show questions the the notion of Amy's heroism and shows how how difficult it is. And I had the same reaction that you did. Like, you're just going to make things worse by doing this Mm -hmm. on the flip side. And we see this is not far from the only example of where her trying to say the right thing or do the right thing is 
why are you saying that? Why are you doing that? This is not the time to socially that you should be bringing this up or you should be trying to do this thing. There's one moment when she sneaks into like when she thinks she's about to be fired and she's like trying to pull all her last strings to not get fired. And she like barges in on a meeting that's about to start and talks to the HR person and says, please, you got to let me start this group. And she's like, I'm in the middle. I'm about to start a meeting. You should go home. I can't talk to you right now. Mm -hmm. And she just has all these moments where she doesn't do the comfortable thing at any one moment, the thing that would be easy. But I think it also ultimately validates her in this show, how, if everyone was willing to be as brave and direct as she is, even if she does things in difficult ways, I think the show <laughs> indicates that people cared as much as she did, that things would be a lot different, that one person can be an agent of change and a lot of people together who all desire, who are all in on a mission can be huge agents of change. I mean, they're on the verge of bringing Abaddon down with, you know, with Dougie and Amy and Tyler all working together. And um, I, I found that to be one of the more powerful themes of the show. Yeah, I think that's right. It's sort of me going back to saying, well, she's not wrong. I mean, there were a lot of times when she's doing something that you're like, oh, it's not terrible cringe TV like some things are, but but there are cringy moments. But there's also that, you know, quick thing that comes right along with it of, well, she's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's a big message. Yeah, I don't know. It's I don't know if I've ever seen a show that is quite so dedicated to the well, she's not wrong angle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like pushing the again the notion of heroism to its uncomfortable extreme mm -hmm. in, in in one sort of perspective. Yeah, I think that's a good message for us to keep in mind today when we're so judgmental about each other. Is you know be a little careful here because there, there are elements of what other people are saying, no matter how much you disagree with them. There are sometimes elements where they're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit more about it, the timing of the show. Do you think that it was, that it was kind of before it's time? I do. I, I think, I, th I don't know if it ever would have been a crossover smash but I think a lot of the things that it's probing, America is a lot more aware of writ large than it was in 2011 and 2013. Oh, really? And Interesting. I, I, I mean, everything from, I already mentioned the data, the data collection and the mm -hmm. way that that is kind of turned against people, the tension and uh, moral ambiguity and complexity of whistleblowing. Mm-hmm the rise of more burn it all down political mindsets mm -hmm. that's becoming more mainstream. I mean, since the show aired, Bernie Sanders, who's openly the furthest left senator in the in Congress, has had two very successful primary runs. And that just shows how mainstream, something that would be considered really radical, that a lot of people have the mindset of destroy the corporations, destroy what we have, rethink the way that everything works that this show touches on, I think are, at least for me personally, ahead of its time. I know people were always thinking about these things, but I think have really been highlighted in the past five or so years. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, of course, some things that dated it. Some of the technology stuff is very, it basically makes it a period piece at this point. How there's an episode where it's called Follow Me, I think. Okay, And it's a play on 
Twitter followers. So oh, yes. she, oh, she tries to uh, <laughs> like this, she draws this parallel of how the way that it, it thinks about how technology connects people and how we follow each other, mm-hmm. <laughs> the technology depicted and even the discourse of it felt very 2011, 2013, not very 2020. Or maybe her naivete about it is what makes it seem. Yeah, that uh, too, for sure. Yeah, yeah, that she's just so clueless. She's like, she's staring at the screen, zero followers. She's like, hmm, I have to fix this. I need more followers. Yeah. (laughs) I think the themes here are, are very progressive in the sense that they foreshadowed things that at least I, and I think much of American culture would be thinking about and talking about at least a little bit more almost 10 years after, after the show was first created. And I think the topics of like the, the ethics of corporations and the role that they play more relevant than ever, for sure. That's what I was thinking about was the corporations and the presentation of the corporations again, and the line along the lines of, well, he's not wrong. There's a scene that comes fairly late, maybe almost at the very end when the CEO has been confronted with his malfeasance and he says to Amy, well, if you had been in charge, I know what would happen if people like you were in charge. You know what would happen? Nothing. Because you guys don't build things, you only tear things down or something like that. You know, it's an interesting observation that people in leadership positions, even in, you know, evil corporations that we talk about, don't see themselves as evil. They do see themselves as builders. And sometimes, in some ways, they're not wrong. I mean, corporations have achieved a lot. I mean, those scenes flying over the skyscrapers, that's achievement, right? And there's a lot behind that, right? You can't just wave that away. Right. Absolutely. The the ends versus means discussion in capitalism. And as that kind of ultimately results in these huge corporations and these billionaires, but then now the incentive is innovation allows the money to come to you. So that that actually incentivizes innovation and creating things and building things. And I think if you get into kind of political economic philosophy, one of the big things that makes capitalism and corporations beneficial or admirable or productive, at least, is that they do, as you said, (laughs) they lead things to be built. They lead things to happen. Think about any, think about the stuff we're talking on that right now, the computers that are recording it, the houses that we live in, all of these things are the result of that that capitalistic need for forward progress and how the the advancements and the the things that allow us to live our lives are are a result of that. So this show kind of highlights some of those things and how, you know, there's all sorts of different angles you can come at it. But mm-hmm. I think there's at least a kernel of truth in what he's saying that mm-hmm. if your perspective is always burn it down, this entity has done bad things. So therefore it must be destroyed is a lot more on the destruction than on the creation. And the the point that he's making, I couldn't help but agree that if someone like Amy Jellicoe was in charge, you know, I don't get the feeling that she 
is a studious person. And so when she spouts off about the oceans or the environment, I, you know, I don't have a sense of confidence that if you put someone like that in charge, they could actually solve some of these really difficult problems that we have facing us. And so the show, I think, you know, exposes that, right? That a lot of times people are just spouting lines and, and it sort of goes back to her thing about, you know, power to the laborers when really she just, she just wants to have fun. She just wants to hang out on the street and yell. (laughs) She wants to hold pickets. She wants to, she wants to put her fist up in the air in solidarity. She wants to be that in the headlines and one that really struck me this time is when people are asking her about her time at open air and she talks about how meaningful it was. She talks about how, Oh, well I, I swam and I saw this turtle. Oh yeah. Oh, and we all sat in turkle. We all sat in circles and we talked and notice that neither of those things like are in any way describing enlightenment, describing like a mission to make the world a better place. Like she, she gets caught up in the totems and she gets caught up in the the narratives and yeah. she, she doesn't have a good way of articulating the details. And I, I think it makes quite clear that Amy would not be a good leader, a CEO. I mean, she, she's an agent of change, but I don't think she's a, a, a leader of a big movement. Well, it's, it's why the title of the show is pretty good. Right. And it, I mean, it's a big word, right. Enlightened and yet fairly quickly, it's scored, sort of got scare quotes around it. You know, it's like, oh yeah, oh, yeah. enlightened. <laughs> uh-huh. She she had a $30,000 vacation to Hawaii and she saw a turtle. She must feel so enlightened now. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then, yeah, when she makes that phone call, right? When she arrives, uh, comes out from the airport and she makes that phone call about, yeah, I'm back in Riverside. It's like, oh, I have a... I have a bad feeling about your fragile state of enlightenment. Uh, yeah. The other thing that was funny about that was when she tells her mom, she says, oh, we sat around in a circle and talked about our lives. And her mom instantly is like, I don't like that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Diane Ladd has just some phenomenal takes of revulsion on things that are like, like good and just the way that she's horrified by the, this this sort of enlightenment that uh, Amy has discovered. There's another good one like that when uh, the episode with Sandy, the, the Robin Wright character, who's kind of this alternate version of Amy who comes and visits. We get the perspective on a conversation that happened previously. We first get Sandy's perspective. Oh, we talked about all this history that she has and how you know, there's a lot of things she's been dealing with and all this stuff and like in a very positive open light. And then we get a cut to Amy talking to her mom and her mom's like, nope, she's got to get out of here. She was asking me all these questions about things I didn't want to talk about. Mm. And just these two different angles, it, it made me laugh a little bit. Yeah. There's one where Amy says to her mother, you know, I want a job where I feel fulfilled. And her mother says, Amy, that's ridiculous. There's <laughs> always this contrast, right? But, but again, but as the audience member, I see their, I see the point on both sides. You know, he, it, it's really, it, no one is, no one is really ridiculous in the show or sort of, we're all equally ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. But again, not, not too broadly, like in that conversation, 
both of their characters seem kind of right and mm-hmm. kind of wrong. Mm-hmm. And neither one is like ridiculous about it. It's like the mom characters just wants her daughter to be content mm-hmm. to have basic comfort and ease in life. But even if it means that you were kind of a grinding job that you're not passionate about and Laura Dern on the other hand wants a job that gives her meaning, but doesn't want to, <laughs> but like she can't do that without, you know, the job was going to be like $20,000 a year or something like that. One job she interviewed for to work at a homeless shelter yeah. and how, you know, both of them have points and both of them also are missing something. The, the representations of work, you know, we've had a lot of shows about work from office space and uh, IT crowd is, is another one. But the presentation of work in this one, I think, is especially memorable. Just the the way the scene looks down there in Cochintiva, and the sound the door makes, like when you put in your key card, and then the door, you know, goes. It's kind of got that sucking sound, like you're going into the vacuum. Mm-hmm. And then that's the other thing about Laura. She fusses all the time about her work and she does almost none, right? So she says, she says to Tyler, what am I doing here? You know, she's, and Tyler's like, not much. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that's, it's very funny, but it's also like played seriously somewhat is when she knows that she's going to have to go talk to HR because Dougie's giving her a referral and she starts frantically asking around, what is this thing that I, this team that I'm working on? What do we do? Yeah, and we know she's do. been there for weeks and weeks. <laughs> Even Connie, I think, is like, you've been here a long time to be asking those questions. <laughs> oh, yeah. dear. So what do, you, what do you think the legacy of Enlightened might be? My guess is that its legacy will be a show that has really passionate followers who people remember it and if you're the certain type of thinking person who um, enjoys these kind of thoughtful deconstructions about the way we work the way we live the way we find meaning mm-hmm. that this show will resonate for for years and years to come and I think it's a show that people will continuously discover and rediscover and find that meaning and find that that exploration to be valuable you know, I don't know if it's going to go down in a pantheon of a short list of shows that were the most important or the greatest, but I do think it will always have its followers and it will have a slowly growing audience of people who who really get a lot out of it for just being a really unique show uh, with a really strong voice, really strong performance, really clear control of its tone, shifting all over the place, but always kind of feeling a part of a whole package and kind of exploring some of these these ideas that are really meaningful right now that are uh, really, it was prescient in some ways as we've talked about, and I think it will continue to be so. So I I always recommend this to people with the caveat that you're going to not always like Laura Dern's character. You're going to find some discomfort. It's going to challenge you to think about things you may not (laughs) enjoy thinking about if you're just trying to wind down after a long day of work. But if you're looking for something that will be really gratifying and really give you some just meaty stuff to to grapple with as you watch it, but also giving you a good narrative and good character portraits. This is this show is a real winner in that regard. It asks big questions. I mean, I, I know that at the beginning that's kind of the shtick of this of the show, but the reality is after two seasons, it really has asked some big questions. 
and engage with them in nuanced ways. It would be mm-hmm. easy for a show to say, this is good or this is bad. But as we've repeatedly talked about, as we've been discussing the show, it almost never goes the easy route of saying this is right and this is wrong, but instead says, well, here's why this is morally gray. Here's why this is complicated. Mm-hmm. Here's why there's trade-offs or casualties or things that you need to think about, unintended side effects of, of all of these angles, all of these things that thinks about, you know, what's the role of romance in filling a hole in our lives? Well, that's just a minor theme, but it spends a whole episode really digging into that. You know, what does it mean to be an agent of change? How is that different from just creating chaos in this world? Does it actually make the the world a better place? And and the way that it's able to do that blend of great writing, great acting, and just really good visual narrative is fantastic. Yeah, I was thinking about the whole question about media and kind of consuming her. And, you know, I think, again, very uh, apropos for for today and how media rushes into one thing and then discards that and on to the next thing. And this show talked about, I mean, it was only a few episodes, but they got into that whole issue about who's victimized when there are these big exposés brought out by the media. And I don't know if this is the one that you're talking about, but the episode where it talks about the immigrant who got deported with their two kids. That one was like scary relevant to 2020 with yes. ICE and the camps and the parents being separated from their kids and how yeah. well, I kind of appreciated the end. It For most of it, Amy kind of passively engages with that. She kind of like talks about, oh, it's so rough, but what can you do? Mm-hmm. And it's like clearly something that bothers her, but she doesn't really know a way to take action. And then it ends maybe not in a kind of profound way where she like saves the day or whatever, but she brings a present to the little girls who got separated from their mom. And it's just this one light, nice little gesture gesture that Amy does. And that was a a surprising good moment in an episode that again, felt very relevant to 2020. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Did the show get very much acclaim? Do you know at the time? So it didn't get many viewers. In fact, that was why it was canceled. In mm. fact, it got very low viewers. It got well less than a million HBO reported, which is considered terrible numbers for live TV. I see. Um, but it got good reviews all around. Mm-hmm. And for its second season in particular, it got pretty decent buzz. She got It got some awards. Uh, Laura Dern got, uh, she won a Golden Globe, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? Uh, for, for Enlightened? For okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And the show was often on uh, like best of the year lists for its second season. If you go on to Metacritic, it has Enlightened Season 2 was the highest rated show of 2013, just based on critical reviews. So I think it it was one of these shows that anyone who watched it and wrote about it and talked about it really had glowing things to say. But the audience itself was really not there. Or yeah, or yeah, it was a bit before its time. Well, here we are trying to uh, bring a little bit more attention to Enlightened because, yeah, I think it's a show worth watching. I, I, I think there are elements of it that do make it seem dated, but in a lot of ways, it's still pretty relevant. I completely agree. And I think in general, your podcast is themed around work and from many different angles. And if that's a topic that interests you, then this show is a no-brainer to go find and watch because it really grapples with 
the meaning of work, some of the nuances of what it means to work in different places, different scenarios, how we use our time to work, et cetera. So it's, it's got a lot to think about. Yeah. Just hope that you don't get Dougie as a boss. (laughs) (laughs) So Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It's always so fun to talk to you. And before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners? I'll be sure and put your podcast in the show notes, but anything else you want to refer them to? Well, I would say that our our podcast, if, if you liked the way that we talked about it here, that's a lot of what we do on, on my podcast, the, the goods. And so if you enjoyed this, please come find us and you can see our list of movies and maybe some movie you either have watched or want to watch. You can hear us talk about it. Otherwise you can find me on uh, earnthis.net. Um, I'm wrapping up a series that's been running for five years where I take a look at some of my favorite. In fact, it was 100 favorite things, TV shows, movies, etc. And I'm now oh, wow. down to just the last couple. So I wrote about the TV show, The Wonder Years recently. Mm-hmm. I wrote about uh, Harry Potter, the mm-hmm. book series. I wrote about Bruce Springsteen and my relationship to his music. Cool. And um, I've been enjoying that. So you can go read me there. And I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dan. That's S-T-A-L-C-U-P-D-A-N. So you can find me there too. All right, Dan, thank you so much again for your time. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. All right. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it as well. And maybe we can talk about something else again sometime. Sounds good. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.